There's no doubt that small businesses are the foundation of our communities. That's why MasterCard has invested in tools to support small business owners as they grow their business. With MasterCard tools and resources, you can increase sales by shortening checkout time, broadening your customer base, and tapping into new opportunities to increase customer loyalty. So get started. Discover all the ways MasterCard can help guide, grow, and protect your business at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. Zensurance is Canada's leading commercial insurance broker, providing small businesses, startups, and entrepreneurs with the coverage they need. We shop over 50 insurance providers, meaning we help small businesses across hundreds of industries save on their annual premiums. Simply visit zensurance.com forward slash startup, and in just a few minutes, you could save up to 35% on the customized policy you need. That's zensurance.com forward slash startup. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have acceleration expert Carrie Lamott. Carrie is the Managing Director of Entrepreneurship at UBC, the incubator and accelerator for innovators and entrepreneurs across the University of British Columbia. A lifelong entrepreneur, Carrie has been embedded in BC's technology sector for more than 20 years, and she's passionate about the growth of BC's innovation ecosystem. She's the co-founder of Women Tech Founders of Canada, a trusted peer group that leverages members' collective expertise and experience to ensure that they're all more connected, they feel more empowered, and they boost their own potential to lead and grow. Carrie has a background in team development from her long career as an entrepreneur and leader. She's built and managed a direct sales organization of 120 people, and she's built an e-commerce startup with both remote and in-person teams. She has experience as an executive search consultant, placing mid to senior management in STEM companies. And get this, she also coaches choirs and ensembles in Western Canada and the U.S. Carrie, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. And we're not going to make you sing. No, thank you. <laughs> Although I'd pay money for that. Maybe you might not time. after you heard me sing. but <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> So coaches don't have to be doers. They just know how to do it. That's exactly okay. right. <laughs> right. Okay. So question one on the Startup Canada podcast is a bold 
attempt to get people to stay to the end by promising that they're going to learn something new and exciting. So what are the top pieces of advice that you hope entrepreneurs will take away from our conversation today? Yeah, I think that uh, we're going to talk about two major areas. Uh, One would be the importance of the network uh, that you're going to be tapping into in your entrepreneurial uh, journey. And then also the amazing things that are happening in universities and how you can tap into that. So, you know, what what opportunities are there for innovation and and connecting both your venture and maybe if you don't have a venture, how you can be jumping in and starting something from scratch. Very cool. Let's start off by getting to know you a little bit better. How old were you when you had your when you did your first entrepreneurial venture? <laughs> oh, good question. Gosh, how old was I? I would have been probably 23. Uh, so really early, it was right out of university. And I had just moved to Canada. Um, and funny enough, uh, it was the dot com days, so late 90s. And there was just so much froth in the market, everything was super exciting. And I immediately jumped into a company called eCharge that was a micropayment uh, processing company. So it was like a 200 person company headed for IPO. Uh, that wasn't my company directly, that was a, a somebody else's company. But it was that fervor and excitement that we kind of are seeing a bit today as well. And uh, uh, that story doesn't end well, as we all know, <laughs> the dot-com uh, boom busted. Uh, but at the same time, my uh, then partner ha- and I had set up another company that was a an e-commerce company. Uh, and so we built a board and a prototype and, and took it uh, as far as we could before that bubble burst. Um, so yeah, so that was the, the onset of my journey was in the late 90s. Okay, so you are a, a dyed-in-the-wool entrepreneur. Yeah. Even if uh, sometimes you take a job to pay the bills. <laughs> well, yeah, and funny enough, as I as I grew, entrepreneurship changed for me. I have a, a slightly different path that it took that maybe not all e-commerce people have taken. And that was around being a female entrepreneur and, and just having that drive within me to always be thinking outside the box. So when I had kids, little kids, um, in that next series of life, you know, there's a big, pretty big box around you, especially if you decide you want to stay home with them. And so I knew I still needed to be in business. It's in me. It's just in my blood. Um, but I also knew I wanted to stay home with my kids. And so I found different paths of entrepreneurship to, to basically work around the life that I had. And that looked like vocal coaching across Western Canada. It looked like building a direct sales business and ironically crafting. Uh, so that was in selling and teaching and all of this kind of empire that we, that I built. Um, but it was specifically so that I could do it with my kids as well. And so my oldest will still talk about that and say, wow, I really love those days when you were building a business that I could be part of as well. And then, of course, I ended up back in, in e-commerce in the, the late 2000s or yeah, I guess it was 2010 or so, uh, building another e-commerce company. So book ended. And what led you to entrepreneurship at UBC? Uh, I think, you know, it's funny because at UBC, it's very similar to vocal coaching in some ways in that you're working with high potential groups and also leaders of those groups to help them to really go from good to great. Um, But also it's, I mean, it's an incredibly innovative place that is, and this is any university, but it's, you know, people who are dedicated to solving huge problems in the world. And I have the same need that many of us have, which is how do we get this stuff out there to make it, to solve these problems now? And so pairing these two things together, the opportunity at entrepreneurship at UBC was just incredibly compelling. And so when they asked, I, I was, it was just a no brainer. I had to move there. Oh, I see. Okay. I was on the website poking around. You have a ton of entrepreneurs in residence and and, and and I love that because 
my experience with a lot of these organizations is that they make do with one entrepreneur in residence. Yet my dream, and I've been involved in, you know, trying to promote the entrepreneurial ecosystem for 30 years, my hope was that one day we would have scores of experienced entrepreneurs giving back in every city across the country because we had built such a such a strong entrepreneurial generation in the 90s and the aughts and and, mm -hmm. and the 2010s and it sounds like we're nearly there because you have a big team of of what look like really amazing people yeah I, and i would expand that we we have I don't know, at any time between 15 and 20 different entrepreneurs and executives in residence. So it's not not only the type of entrepreneur who comes and helps entrepreneurs and following in their footsteps in the, you know, the general business development, but it's the specific skills of how do we land our first global customer? How do we, you know, th that type of skill set that we bring in to really help in unique areas. But then we also have earlier in our pipeline, almost 300 mentors from the industrial community from all walks, from all types, and just diversity like you wouldn't believe, who are jumping in and rolling up their sleeves and working with these companies. So this is not armchair advice by any means. This is the reason that we're successful is because of this community and is because of their commitment to, to work with the ventures in the messy, ugly, hard stage and just figure it out, nut it out, make it happen. Isn't that amazing? Uh, does, does, does anyone keep track of which incubators have the most entrepreneurs and residents? Because I would think you're, 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 you're going to be somewhere up there in the top five. I don't know. I never heard that. I've never thought about that before. But no, certainly, I think that um, we have a different approach uh, with the EIRs as well in that there we don't have EIRs working directly one on one with the team as much as having a team of EIRs working with a venture. So because we have that very diverse network of EIRs when they get to the later stage and are working with them with the companies. Um, because of that, they can they can kind of specialize and form an executive team around that founder as they develop those skills themselves. So it's a it is a very different type of model. It's far more collaborative than the traditional EIR model. Fantastic. Let, let's just go back a little bit and ask you what excites you most about supporting startups and founders. Oh gosh, um, I think that one part is the type of people you're working with. I mean, to me, my network is the, the people that I meet are the thing that fascinates me the most. I'm a people observer and a thinker, and I just I just love seeing how people interrelate. And what is interesting about this is the ability to both see people who are experienced and have worked, you know, over the years in many different innovative contexts, working with people who don't know that something is impossible. So there's this this mind shift of the, we well, can't do that, it's impossible. It, we've tried this a million times over the last 30 years and this this need to make it happen anyway. And there's it's like putting these two kind of um, polar ideas together and fireworks happen where suddenly you get this crazy innovative um, uh, environment of, well, then if you're insisting on making it happen, let's think outside the box and figure out what that might look like. So at any rate, I think that uh, it's that context, that vibrancy that is incredibly exciting. It's the innovation itself that these are these are real problems that can solve global level issues in the world or re real real solutions that can solve those problems. 
Um, so you combine that with this heady mix of just incredible industrial talent, naive ideas that that don't know they can't do it, and so they do it anyway. Just makes this amazing environment. What a, you paint a delicious picture there. Yeah, the the, the, the experience, the, the the heavy industry, and the naive idealists uh, who fuel the whole thing. That that that, that sounds beautiful. Um, maybe we should help some listeners out who might not be familiar with these beasts called accelerators and, and, and incubators. And what's the difference? And what, 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 how do these things work? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, particularly right now, because I think the industry as a whole is taking an opportunity to look at it again and see, you know, what do we mean by this? What is incubation? What is acceleration? I think traditionally it has meant something around, you know, the incubation being the the nurturing of an idea, acceleration being, hey, this company's ready to go, so we're really going to shoot it forward. And it's a very uh, traditionally it can kind of be a bit of a linear model. Um, so what we've been thinking about over the last couple of years is what exactly is our role? You know, what is do we need to use these these boxes and these labels, or can we think differently about what this is about? And so we've really reframed the experience to be what is the founder and venture journey? What is what is it that needs to happen? What does success look like? And then what is what are the steps that we need to take to get them there? And so from our perspective, you know, what maybe is slightly unique about an, an, a university environment is that, you know, there's a lot of research that we're translating. There's a lot of, um, you know, work that's been done for decades studying a particular idea, a breakthrough happens, and maybe there's an opportunity to build a company around it. So there's a, a lot of cycles that you could call, you could say are incubation inside of that, but it certainly also then turns into a commercial opportunity at some point inside, inside of that translation process. So we're both an incubation and an acceleration entity, but I think one of the things that's really important for us to, to recognize is that the more we put boxes around what entities are or are not, and, you know, when we label them in certain ways, the easier it is to kind of wipe it off, you know, say, oh, well, they're all one thing. They all look the same. And I think what is really important is to recognize that many hands build ventures. We won't be the only incubator and accelerator that works with ventures. We're really, really good at building companies. There's other entities that focus on other things like engineering and manufacturing and developing those relationships. Hacks is a great example of an accelerator that is built to accelerate the engineering manufacturing side of things. There's Techstars and they have different areas like Techstars Barkley out in New York where it's about finance and really accelerating the network of finance that, that you need to have. There's CDL that's about investment networks and all of those types of entities are entities we see our ventures entering into at an acceleration phase but largely at the same time that they're still in our program where we're continuing to help them build their venture. So incubation acceleration I think is a I think it's an artificial topic in some ways. I think it's about what are you doing for the companies? How are you helping them get off the ground? What is the part of the journey that you're supporting? And and how do you de deliver these services? So are we talking about formal programs and formal cohorts? Or do you sort of uh, hand tool a solution for every company or naive dreamer that stops by? Yes. <laughs> we, we do all, all of that. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know, it's university environment, you see a little bit of everything. So having a completely rigid educational model isn't going to probably be as successful as having uh, areas where we've identified 
that there's a programmatic element where we can teach a one-to-many approach because it's largely about filling in knowledge gaps versus the pieces where it's, okay, and now this is your special snowflake. This Your venture is yours alone targeting a specific issue, and we're going to have to bring in unique types of people to support you in that. So our program really starts with uh, what we call an entrepreneurial explorer uh, component, which is around what is your idea? What's your innovation? And we just start throwing it against the wall with them and, you know, figure that oftentimes they're platform technologies that might have multiple markets that they enter into. So part of the question is, what's the best one to address first? Is there an, is there an opportunity here or not? And then if they make it through that stage, and there's a lot of mentors that contribute to that, uh, they make it to our entrepreneurial founder stage, which is around the foundational pieces to build a business. So this could be incorporation and those, you know, kind of boring business principles. But it's also around making that idea concrete and attractive. So we start the magnet process at that stage. And this is where they start attracting more people from the network and they start to create fans and advisors and investors that are starting to look at them and saying, hmm, this is kind of cool. And then maybe the first pilots come into play, maybe the first early customer experiences. If that all goes well and things are still ticking along, you know, there's going to be there's another segment that we have, and that's our entrepreneurial builder program. And that is what you might call acceleration if you wanted to use a bucket term. But what it's really about is let's get that magnet solid so that you as an entity are your own magnet, not because we're pulling in the network anymore to surround you, but because you now are are pulling the network directly into yourself. So what that looks like is an anchor customer that that we help you land that first customer, that first real beachhead market person that you can Uh, identify and reference to get further customers down the path. It's about getting your seed financing in place. It's about making sure that the advisor network that you have around you is in place and ready to carry you forward on the journey that will happen after you leave the doors of the university. So it's very much a uh, purpose-built organization will take you up to the point of Series A and then wish you well. And hopefully at that point, you are just such a moving force that you're going to pull in the other resources that you need. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a that, that, that's a breathtaking uh, spectrum that you've just painted. But thank but thank you for doing that. How many companies would you be working with on any given time, say today, from you know one end of the spectrum to the other? What, how many companies? On an annual basis, we probably see a hundred ventures in our pipeline uh, throughout the year. The, the the pipeline itself, as you can imagine, not all companies will necessarily need to make it through all the phases. Life science companies may have an exit point that happens somewhere inside of our program. So they may not make it to the entrepreneurial builder phase based on their trials. But if we were to look at the very end stage of our program, we probably see 30 to 40, probably I'd say 30 companies that would really make it into that late later stage company. So um, so yeah, it's a bit of a filter as they as it goes. Carrie, can you share with us a couple of success stories from entrepreneurship at UBC, a couple of companies that have gone through that gauntlet and are off to greater things? Sure. Um, Maybe I'll share a couple of different types of stories that uh, can paint a little bit of the spectrum of what we see here. Um, The first example I might mention, now, of course, we could talk about Accelera, and um, obviously that came from UBC and has had great success with an IPO. Um, But I might also- Sorry, who? I, Abcel- I, yeah, Abcelera. <laughs> don't don't assume I know anything. Tell us about Abcelera. Sure. So Abcelera is uh, one of the. It's an mRNA company that is has been a major part of 
the COVID solutions and they had an IPO. Oh, that Abcellera. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had yeah. an IPO earlier, I guess it was later last year, earlier this year, uh, for over a billion dollars. So it's a, it's a great success story for our community. Um, but I might actually take a moment and talk a little bit about some of the more recent companies that we're also seeing uh, coming up the pipeline. Uh, one is Aspect Biosystems, and they have a super interesting solution where they have um, they have created the ability to print, 3D print human tissue. And they're going quite a bit down the path on, on that regard. I've had uh, tens and millions in financing, but uh, are getting close to the point in the next couple of years where we might actually see the ability to print a human organ to go right into a body uh, and in some wow. really interesting ways. So, you know, that's a kind of company that we tend to see that's, that's doing quite well. And obviously the life sciences sector in, in Vancouver is booming. Um, but another contrasting story to that would be a company that didn't come from research, and this speaks more to the you know the innovative environment that we have at the university and at most universities. Uh, and this company is called Stoco, and Stoco was an uh, at the time undergraduate developed company that uh, had a bunch of athletes that were that came together and said, "Gosh, we've got these knee problems," as a lot of us can associate with. And you know the devices that are on the market today are so. <laughs> Horrible! They're you know these cages you have to put around your knees in order to do your sports, and they're not even allowed in sports uh, if you're a professional athlete. So there's got to be a better way. So they came together and said, "Well, let's figure out what this could look like. What if we could build a a, a structure within the fabric of, say, like a, a Lululemon pant, for instance? Um, what would that look like, and how? And what if it could actually be more supportive than an external cage? And then that way, athletes could continue doing the work that they want to do without the restrictions of not being able to use a cage in a, <clears throat> excuse me, in a team environment. And so they did. They built that, and they now have had amazing traction. Multiple raises are now selling in the the market, and those people who I have spoken to who have used their product, it's game changing. This is something that changes your life because. You know, what seems like just the niche product is actually something that blocks people not only from a sports career, but also from just the personal life of, you know, of athleticism. And uh, so it's these kinds of, of, of varied ideas. You know, yes, we have research that gets translated, but we also have wonderful undergraduate ideas that get translated into the market and are doing amazing things. Cool. And that's Stoko, S-T-O-K-O. I just looked it up. Stokodesign.com. That sounds really interesting. They all sound really interesting. What kind of an affiliation does a, an entrepreneur or a company have to have with UBC before you know, they can come in to entrepreneurship at UBC? Yeah, there does have to be a UBC connection as it's funded primarily by the university itself. And so that could be a staff or a faculty member, a researcher, a um, it could also be an alumni, a recent alumni. So we do see a lot of different different folks come in and they have to have some part in the cap table. So there's some some ownership element as well. Okay. Uh pretty interesting. What what would you say are the three most important learnings that you hope entrepreneurs will take away? Uh, so the, the three most life-changing epiphanies that you try and make sure that, uh, that, that, that your founders leave with. And I ask for three because one of them is, is too easy. <laughs> uh, I would say, well, one has got to be growth mindset. And I know we spend so many cycles talking about growth mindset and how important it is, but it, it really can't be understated. It's the ability to look at situations 
to understand, to, to almost get on the balcony view, uh, to be able to say, okay, this is what's happening in this moment. Maybe these are rough, it's a rough time that we're in a rough patch. I'm going to get to a high level and take a look at what this means in the greater picture. So there's a resilience inside that. There's a flexibility inside of that. Um, so I'd say that that's the first thing that we try and impart is this ability to get to the balcony view. And it sounds like there's ambition in there too. Right? Oh, absolutely. Not, not just resilience. It's it's that that boundless expectation. Yeah. So maybe there's a connection as well to, you know, everyone comes. The, the wonderful thing about the university is that you get this this sense of purpose and drive and I need to make a solution happen. I have to do this. Um, so that's there, but it isn't always uh, connected to the building of a company. And so maybe part of what we actually do offer as well is how to also see the development of the company as just as important as the development of the product itself. So being able to, to handle both the, yeah, we're building this amazing solution, but we're also building an entire movement uh, oftentimes, because we're often dealing with, uh, say, climate solutions, um, there's a there's a movement element to this that you need to be able to to be a thought leader around as well. So there's there's that component to the growth mindset. Okay, two more big epiphanies. Yeah. So the second one I think I would identify would be network. It's got to be network. Um, it's under and network isn't just about who's coming in to help you to learn from. That's not really what I mean by network. I mean more of the sense of who is going to be part of your venture journey and that you're op that you're learning instead of the journey being something that's kind of in front of you and linear and that you can see that it's a holistic, you know, that you're kind of turning yourself inside out and saying, who am I going to work with? Who's going to who's going to be part of this journey together with me? And how am I going to bring them in and make them want to be part of this? So it's a far deeper idea of you know, the people around you are not just here to help you. They're here to grow this with you and be part of the development of your company today, but also tomorrow. And that is around advisors, investors, your team members, other executives you want to pull in as you start to grow your company. So I'd say that's probably number two. And is that a hard part? Because a lot of entrepreneurs almost define themselves by being iconoclasts, loners. <laughs> I can do it myself. Yeah, it is. It, it can be tough. But I'd say that it's the culture of the environment itself that tends to also promote that. So it's, you know, the fact that they have amazing people surrounding them and you can you can just feel it when you're around the people who come into the, the halls to support these companies. You know, you want to actually kind of shelve your ego a little bit and say, hey, you know what, let's, let's actually get past this and make it bigger than the sum of the parts, right? Let's, let's figure out how we are going to build this together. And those people who aren't really, who are more about building their ego or building, you know, a very direct, let's make a big money maker. Well, they're, they're probably not really a fit for the program anyway, because they're not going to get, they're not going to get the exceptional benefit of the network coming around to support and lift them up anyway, because they'll be close to that. So, yeah. And then the third, the third element, well, okay, this is it. After all of that, it might sound kind of basic, but it's the skill development, right? It's, it, it's every piece of building a company from how do you land a customer? How do you work with customers? Uh, you know, it's the, the piece that you don't necessarily get in academia, where it's just the practical knowledge of how to get people behind your mission in various ways, whether it be from a financial perspective and, and raising capital or it be from a marketing and sales perspective. But, I, but I'm looking for the cheat notes here. So what's the biggest problem there and what's the hack that, 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 that lets me do it? 
Yeah, the hack. <laughs> um, well, it's it honestly, it's the scaffolding. So we're we're giving them the scaffolding of doing it with them until they can do it themselves. So that's the cool notes of it. But it is it is the skill development to to figure out how the heck you actually build it, not just what you normally see in incubators, which is a theoretical positioning on that. Right. That that that's all very cool, very exciting. There was an article in Forbes about university incubated startups that suggested that university incubators or accelerators have a higher rate of success uh, growing businesses than, you know, just compared to startups in general. Uh, do you measure this? Do, do, does this match with your experience? Yeah, it's something actually we want to start measuring more clearly. We're seeing those results for sure. Um, I, I know Source had a report as well they put out in 2020 called Mind the Gap, and they measured the going public rate of university-built startups as 8% versus 0.07% for non-university startups, as well as having a 68% survival rate over 20 years. So certainly, yes, we are seeing more success from the ventures themselves. What we're looking at is, can we accelerate, and yes, we're talking about acceleration again, but can we accelerate the time it takes to get those, those solutions to market? And so what we are seeing in the last year is, I think we've seen about 10 companies uh, in our program get to a Series A point in, in that year. So we are absolutely seeing that they are succeeding more there. And, and, and why that's important is that that's a market validation. You know, at Series A level, this is a this is does this have enough juice to it, enough interest in it, enough magnetism that the external world is willing to invest to say say yes, we vote for this and we're going to pull this forward. So it's actually quite a quite a strong measurement of the success of the program, um, and and programs like this in translation. Right. Um, obviously, a, a program that can create companies that could grow up to be unicorns. Um, is obviously of incredible importance to a, a city and a province and an economy. Um, do you get a lot of support from government and from corporations as well as the university? Ah, that's a really good question. Um, we do get a little bit of support from uh, our BC Innovation arm, uh, and it also get a little bit from our Genome BC arm. So that would be Innovate BC and Genome BC. Um, but I'd say that importantly, I think as in both a, a provincial ecosystem and a federal ecosystem, we need to we need to take a really hard look at what what the world is going to need in terms of solutions. And when we look at those types of solutions, they're often going to be coming out of research institutions. And when you look at that type of company development, so we can call that deep tech just to, to bring it into a colloquial term, those are often technologies that take 10 to 15 years before you see the real commercial benefit from them. They just take longer. There's a heavy R&D component. But these are the types of, we're entering into a, a, a phase where we're going to expect to see more deep tech uh, need to solve the problems that are out there. And so what's important is that when we look at political uh, support for this type of work, this translational work, they're not going to necessarily be able to show the results of inputting into a system. So supporting both the incubation and the acceleration that happens at that phase, but also creating opportunities to support the company specifically in that translational stage. We won't see the results of that for 10 to 15 years, which doesn't necessarily make it super sexy for, for <laughs> governments to, to put money towards. 
Um, so there's a there is a lack of support at what we call the innovation gap, which is earlier than what that traditional gap is we talk about when we talk about software companies. Um, this innovation gap is around the the support that is needed between when basic research support is is available, which there's lots of programs there for, and when when in um, investment capital is ready to to invest. So after the the company or the product has been de-risked. And that gap in the middle there, there's very little funding to support either the companies or the programs. And the reason is because it's messy, it's ambiguous, it's it doesn't necessarily look like an opportunity. Some companies will still make it through that gap because their idea is familiar enough or is the market has already identified as a solution well enough that they and, and they may have investment networks behind them that are willing to support it that they may skate through that but when you're talking about truly disruptive ideas largely what we all know is that we won't recognize them as successful off the bat in fact the majority of the feedback they'll get is you know this is kind of crazy and actually we don't think that this is this isn't what everybody wants and so if, if we really want to have a disruptive innovation culture where we're putting real ideas out there that can make big change, we have to identify and support that messy, ambiguous stage so we have more shots on goal that can then become identifiable down the pipeline. So who supports the companies through the innovation gap? Is that the role of universities? Do my kids' tuition fees have to pay for that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, right now, I'd say that there isn't a lot of support at all. We're super fortunate at the University of British Columbia that they've identified that part of the the need of impact or part of what the, the world needs is for some of the amazing research to be supported to get to impact faster. And we can do that through commercialization. So there is a small amount, uh, not a small amount, the, the university has funded this program to make that happen. But my argument would be that they've done, they've, they've been, they have had that vision. We need to now bring in the other elements, the other people who will benefit from that uh, through government and other entities to support, support that growth. And part of the, the, the way of filling that gap is that small army of successful entrepreneurs and executives who are giving back, giving their time absolutely to, to help bridge this gap. Yeah, if you were to actually put in a monetary uh, view the amount of of support from a monetary perspective that's being given to this program, there is there is nothing that matches to the extent of what the community itself is putting into these programs. If you tallied up the hourly rate of these senior executives who jump in in the hundreds to support these companies, you just can't you can't measure it in comparison. So yeah, the community is absolutely diving in. But the community can also only go so far when it comes to the R&D that still needs to happen from a market perspective after you've left basic research and you're still de-risking the technology. The community can't necessarily cross that gap. The companies still need to have some, some money in the bank to get them past that point. And remember, a lot of these are postdoc students or, or you know, people who have been working on their their you know university career for the last 10 years they're not they're not built of money <laughs> so how do we make sure that they've got the funding to de-risk it enough so that they can attract investment well it sounds to me like the community or the country the jurisdiction that figures that out is going to have a huge lead in the innovation economy going forward yeah there's a lot of other countries who have identified exactly this <laughs> so europe's looking at this the U.S. is looking, the U.S. Is, has had programs like this for a while, not that it's solved, but they've got some really interesting pockets. Each of their states have uh, various ways of addressing this gap. 
So a lot of uh, ecosystems will specifically build a grant style um, uh, budget that goes into the early stage until it's investable and then it, and then that same entity would would have an equity type of a component. So in BC, we actually have a new equity uh, envelope called uh, invest or in in BC invest in BC. And that would largely help with some of those later stage equity type investments that might be needed, particularly when you're looking at deep tech and longer longer periods before you get a return. But it doesn't address still the grant side that other ecosystems have done. So we're still we're still behind in Canada and from NBC on that piece. Well, it sounds like you're figuring it out faster than most. So that's a good thing. Let's hope. <laughs> Carrie, what sectors are you most excited about over the next few years? Where's all the action going to be? Uh, you know what's I, I, what I'm most passionate about. I have to admit is climate solutions. I that is absolutely. I think we all realize how much it affects all of us at a root level, and I think that there's a lot of different paths that will be creating solutions from that. So I think we're going to see a lot of biotech solutions, a lot of um, specific engineering solutions that are going to solve these major problems. So that that is my heart and soul pumping beat right now, closely followed <laughs> by human health and the amazing, uh, you know, things that we're learning that even, you know, this terrible situation with COVID, obviously, it's a tragedy. And we've all had a really horrible uh, time over the last couple of years. And how much awesome research is now surfacing and finding application and the opportunities we have to to cure some diseases that have been, you know, languishing on the side with some of this research. So there's a boom about that we're about to experience that is just so exciting to watch. And I think what's really exciting is to see Vancouver's life science scene just just start to flourish like it never has before. Um, we've always had a strong sector, but but this is this is just a new heyday for us. So it's just a, it's a super exciting time to be part of deep tech. And I'd say that oh, you know although my background is obviously e-commerce and more software, my the excitement that I have right now is about these deep tech solutions that are getting translated into real impact that are going to solve these big big human challenges that we have today. We haven't mentioned AI once. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because we, we we talk so much about AI being a sector, but when it's really I, from my perspective, it's a tool. It's in so many. If I were to tell you how many companies have AI built somewhere inside of it in our just in our program alone, it, it kind of becomes suddenly ubiquitous. It's like, well, of course, it's got some AI inside of it. And, and AI itself has so many, you know, it's a machine learning is it? you know, to me, it's like, yeah, of course, AI, it's it is kind of acknowledged that that's part of it. Right. Okay. Well, that, uh, and, and, and that makes a, a ton of sense. And it's, and it's actually exciting to hear how excited you are about some of these uh, new innovations coming down the pipeline in health in, 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 and, and in climate solutions. So very exciting. And I mean, if any province of Canada should be, uh, you know, out in front on climate solutions, it's, it's got to be BC. So that's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Do you have any really useful resources or support networks that help entrepreneurs grow that you'd like to share with our listeners? So, you know, maybe they're, you know, they're past the incubator stage, but the, you know, they'd like access to some of this learning, to some of these connections. Uh, what, what kind of resources are available that, that you can recommend that entrepreneurs just look into to see if uh, they can be helpful to them? 
Oh, sure. You know, it's funny. Um, I'm, I kind of have an infamous brand of, of being a bookworm. And so I read crazy amounts of, of books. And there's, there's actually three books that I recommend more than any other books uh, on the market. Um, and I recommend them regardless of the, si- the, the size or the scale of the company. Uh, the first one is about being a founder and or and actually this isn't just being a founder. This is anybody who's who's looking at really understanding their own leadership role within companies. But um, it's called Unique. Uh, what is it called? It's Unique. Um, unique Abilities 2.0. And it's a workbook and a book combined. It's kind of expensive, but it walks you through who you are in an organization and who you're not. And it's not even within an organization. It's just like, what are your what are your unique skills that you bring to the table? And I think it's absolutely uh, integral to developing companies because when you know what you are and what you're exceptional at, and you know what you're not and what you don't love, then it enables you to fill that network around you in a way that you're you're not just filling blanks, but you're making that ex- exponential greater than the sum of the parts uh, organization, right? So that book is the the beginning of that um, of that uh, process that you need to go through as a leader. So that's the number and one. Is that, first and one is I that geared to individuals or to, to like teams and organizations? It's geared to individuals, but I utilize it myself through teams. Um, and then w- what we do, and it's a program, is we actually do bring in some other. Uh, you know, team development type systems where you measure, you know, this is what you're great at, this is not what you're great at, and there's lots of different systems like that. Um, But the idea is that you start with this basic concept of it's okay to not be everything as the founder. Like, you will have a specific skill set, and part of your job as the CEO or the CEO or whatever you decide to be is to understand what where you can hire someone better than yourself around yourself and then build that team and, and understand that that's also a beautiful part of this picture. Got it. Book number two. Uh, that's around operational rhythm. Uh, and this, so I recommend this one all the time. It's called Get a Grip. It's the EOS uh, operating system by Gino Wickman. And I've, I've done tons of different uh, organizational and operational rhythm books uh, in my career. And in fact, my last company was uh, Rockefeller Habits, which is also really interesting for later stage companies. But I really like Get a Grip because it helps companies that are new, that are you know maybe at the seed stage or a series A stage and beyond to just really understand you know, what are they working towards? What are the immediate goals that they need to be working on at on both the five-year, three-year, one-year quarterly basis? So that's a really great book. Very cool. And number three? Uh, that is my personal favorite, uh, Medici Effect by Franz Johansson. And actually, we have... Uh, we will be having him out this next year uh, working with uh, or talking to our founders as well. But uh, essentially, this is around innovation ecosystems and how well, innovation... Medici's, weren't they bad people? <laughs> well, yeah, you could talk about that. But one thing that they did was good was they were uh, benefactors in you know the Renaissance. So they uh, would bring in, the, they'd create these communities together that were everything from writers to authors or to, uh, sorry, to uh, painters and, uh, but also financiers and inventors. And they'd create these opportunities for all of those people to come together. And of course, we all know the Renaissance was this amazing, innovative time. And so what Franz Johansson talks about is that is 
what role intersection and um, diversity and networks, and again, it's going back to this network concept, what role that plays in innovation and how we need to cre recreate those types of diverse networks in order to, to really build these great ideas. It's kind of the Pixar story as well. Pixar has a very similar um, bent to it. So those are my three. Fascinating. That, that, that's a great uh, list. So thank you for that. Uh, and we'll get that out uh, in, in other media as well to let people know that the, these resources are out there. They're books. You have to read them, but, you know, you can skim some parts if you want. Um, <laughs> that, that's great stuff. So, so we've talked about all the great work you're doing at Entrepreneurship at UBC, and it's, it's exciting to hear what's going on and the resources that are being made available to entrepreneurs and the efforts being made to help them think more clearly, think bigger, and think more collectively so that they can create amazing things. But what I want to know about is coaching choirs. So I imagine, <laughs> I imagine that that involves you turning talented, strong-willed musicians into harmonious collectives. So is there anything you've learned in your choir coaching about teamwork and effectiveness and getting stuff done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually, bet there's some, I, I bet there's a connection here. Absolutely. There is. That's, that is um, in everything that I do. Actually, a lot of that work came from working with choirs and I guess it, the, what's interesting about the work that I did with choirs uh, for oh gosh, 15, 20 years um, was my specialty was in working with choirs that were, you could call like a B plus level. So really, really good choirs, but they weren't like the professional choir level, but they really wanted to be. So they had a really strong drive, but they were hitting a ceiling. They just couldn't move beyond it. And so my, where I would go in was to unlock that stage. And then largely once they became exceptional choirs, other other types of coaches would work with them to become, you know, world-class in various ways. Maybe and, people who could sing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I think that uh, one of the reasons I was successful in that, and this is probably the underlying idea that I've taken to all the things I work on, is that six, I think that we tend to see success as a as a destination. Obviously, we always talk about that. Um, but we, we identify with a particular part of it and you either are or you're not. And especially as coaches or mentors working with, you know, in, this is innovation in a different context, but with innovative groups, you know, it's easy to fall into a pattern of saying, well, you're not that now. And I can't quite see how you're going to get there because your path, the, the path you're currently on is blocked. Um, so there's a, a a risk aversion to working with the group itself. You see that kind of commonly. In fact, one, one thing you hear a lot from B plus level groups is the A plus level uh, coach doesn't want to work with me because we're not at that stage. And so I guess one of the things that I see differently in this is I see things from a continuum path. And so I don't really care where you are on your journey, if you're at the beginning or the middle or the end. Um, because that's the kind of coach I am. Uh, what I care about is if you're flexible on that journey. So are you willing to challenge your assumptions? Are you willing to move on the track? And, and as long as you are, there's no identification of whether you're successful or not successful. And when you come in as a coach and you help people to understand that you truly believe that, that you don't, you're not going to identify them or, or put them into a box because they are or they aren't something, you suddenly open up this entire rich palette of the choices you can make. 
And one of the most common choices you have to make when you're dealing with something that is, is looking like a good thing, but it's stuck, is that you have to work together to identify that the path that they've chosen to date isn't one that's going to take them any farther. And, you, and to do that with them collaboratively so that they're the one that really comes to that conclusion themselves. So there's not this kind of, you know, push pull and antagonism of I think you're good or not good. So getting them off of that branch and then working towards a, a different path where suddenly there's, you know, the world is their oyster and there's tons of opportunity ahead of them. That's what Volca coaching for me was about. And it was what it was about when I was a direct sales leader and running an organization of, you know, hundred people who are all trying to also be exceptional. And it's the same thing I've applied to organizations uh, to date. It makes a, a ton of sense. And, and I, I, I love the, all the connections that you're, that, 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 that you're drawing together from that about potential, not judging them on where they are on the continuum, but how willing and flexible they are to get to where they need to go. So that's really exciting. Are you going to be uh, coaching the Vancouver Canucks at any time? <laughs> you know, they ask me all the time, but I just haven't got time. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Bigger fish to fry. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, we have been talking with Carrie Lamott, the Managing Director of Entrepreneurship at UBC. It's been a great conversation, but now... The rubber hits the road, and I'm going to ask you if you have one final actionable piece of advice that our listeners can take away and implement in their businesses immediately. Yeah, so I think I might tie together a couple of, of topics we've gone over today um, into one idea, and that's around what is it your venture needs? So when you're looking at your founding journey and you have all the opportunities of incubators and accelerators and the labels that they they give to you what is it that you want to solve and then find the right incubator or accelerator for you at that time of your journey to 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 work with and the part i tie into that is that it's a it's about that way that you approach the network so when you're looking at those incubators accelerators and also universities and the innovation areas there you know, walking into it, what, how are you going to utilize the relationships that are there in a way that's mutually beneficial? How are you going to become a magnet that makes them want to work with you long term and help you to build what your vision is? Beautiful. I've been uh, I, I did a little bit of work with an entrepreneur about five or six years ago who was just getting started. And I helped with figure out some of the branding and stuff and how to communicate it. And uh, he's been a little bit successful. He's had product out. He's uh, he's exporting. Um, I I was surprised to see he showed up in an accelerator that I'm familiar with uh, this year, and I thought, why they put him in? He's been around forever, and uh, you know, he's he's at this mid to mediocre level. Um, why why'd they take him in? And you've helped me realize that. It's about the continuum. So I guess virtually anyone in a business that has ambition could qualify for an accelerator. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been at it. Um, if you have the right potential and the, the right mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a, probably an incubator that is built for you. Just keep figuring it out. <laughs> Fantastic. Carrie Lamont, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Congratulations on all the great work that you're doing doing uh, in, in, in Vancouver at UBC, and uh, I'm going to follow this story with continued great interest. Great. Thanks so much for having me today. Thanks, Carrie. We'll talk again. 
Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.